Shut the doors. What's up, brother? Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. In case you were wondering whose kids it were that were tackling each other as they were coming down to give the offering, that's my wife's kids. And there's definitely a sermon illustration in there somewhere about crying because you don't get to be the one to throw it in the metal thing and tackling. That's a different Bible passage. Um, I got, uh, as kind of a lead-in, I've got five kids, and um, my oldest daughter was born in France, and, uh, and so we, she's got to the place now where we have to renew her passport. And because she was born in France, like you have to have uh, like naturalization papers. And she has a unique uh, document that basically comes from the State Department that says that she's an American citizen, uh, born to American parents abroad. And it's real important. So it's kind of a little bit of extra steps in order to um, get her passport and do different stuff. We have to turn in all kinds of identification about who I am and who her mother is and um, things about in the document of her birth certificate is in French. And so uh, just kind of things that have to go with identifying her so that we can get a document that identifies her when we travel, a passport. And um, it made me start to think about like IDs and the fact that previous to the time I was 16, I lived on this earth without any form of identification, right? And in the right state, I could have probably voted. You know what I mean? And so I didn't need identification. I didn't become aware of how important I, you're going to have to bear with me here a second. I didn't really pick, become aware of how important identification was until I wanted to buy beer and wasn't old enough. All right? That's only for a few of you in here that know what I'm talking about. Standing outside of a convenience store doing the hey, mister. All right? And so I, identification became access into certain places or restriction from places. Um, identification is this thing that we kind of carry on us at all times. It's surprising to me that in Colorado you don't have to have your driver's license on you anymore, right? Like you just take a picture of it and like you don't even have to have the document uh, with you. And for me, that seems crazy. It's like you, for me, I'm nervous if I leave the house without like uh, my identification. And even this now, we love identifying things. For instance, like if, if you've been watching um, these television shows, like I, I don't see them, but The Voice like, people try to listen to someone's voice without seeing them and identifying their talent apart from their face. Or uh, I saw a commercial for a show called, like, is it The Mask? I don't know if they're singing or dancing. Every, like, show is, like, either singing or dancing. The Mask Singer or Dancer or Singing and Dancing. I don't know what they're doing. They're Justin Timberlake up there. And so they're wearing a mask and the people try to identify what B-level celebrity is wearing a mask and either singing or dancing. And they'll watch the whole show trying to guess if it's like Dwight Howard or something. I don't know. And so this, this show is that they're, they're wearing something that kind of masks their identity, but you're trying to guess who they are. Or um, this gets into even where my wife is. She loves uh, the most horrific crime shows there are. And she'll watch the whole show trying to look at the evidence to deduce who is the person 
that killed horrifically this person, and then she won't sleep. Right? And, and it's just crime shows are the same thing after the same thing after the same thing. But it's like you look at the evidence and try to deduce who is this person and what did they do. Let me tell you, church, this is the same process of evaluation that the scripture invites you to when it comes to Jesus. That we have evidence for who he is and what he has done. And the Bible invites you to draw a verdict about who he is. And where you land on that question is critical, not just for finding out who you are and what your purpose is, but it has eternal ramifications. And so today, uh, I just want to work through uh, the disciples IDing who Jesus is and the consequences of where they land on that. And I want to really pick up where Ronnie, Ronnie did a great job last week um, introducing us into the Great Confession and passed out or uh, kind of went down a path of distilling Peter's development of understanding who Jesus is. So if that's kind of, as we see the exact mountaintop and the continental divide of the Gospel of Mark is Peter's confession. Uh, it's a mountaintop, and he took one path down the ski slope. The next two weeks, I want to take two other pathways down that ski slope. And I think there's some, some really um, powerful conclusions and things for your life in um, the next few weeks. All right? So before we jump into it, let's pray and just ask God to help us down this mountain. All right? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you sent Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, to rescue sinners like us. People in here who have failed sexually, people in here who have lied and stolen, people in here who have hurt other people with our actions and our words. God, there ain't good church people in here, there's just sinners. And so, God, we come as sinners needing grace and forgiveness and help. God, we are incapable of understanding your word the way you want us to understand it or living your word apart from your help. And so we come humbly asking for you to pastor us all over again, to teach us. God, to open our eyes. Some of us here have retreated from your call on our lives. And so, God, would you pick us back up, dust us off, and set us on the path again? God, for the hard things I have to say to my brothers and sisters today, God, would you give them ears to hear? Holy Spirit, would you come do a million more things that I'm capable of with my talking? God, we want all of this to make it Jesus and his glory, and his worth, and his value explicit. And so come and exalt yourself through the preaching of the word, and cause us to worship, to love you, and to serve you with all of our lives. God, we surrender all to you now, and ask that we would um, just have a sacred moment with you here in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. If you've got a Bible, I want you to actually open it uh, to Matthew chapter uh, 16, start in verse 13. It is the parallel passage to what we just encountered uh, when Dennis read the great confession from the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to get the great confession from another Gospel writer, and uh, there's, there's a reason for that. 
This, in the Gospel of Mark, as we said, is the halfway point in the book. And so as uh, the famous American poet uh, John Bon Jovi said, we're halfway there. Living on a prayer. All right? Some of you are like, that's generational. Um, But here's what I want to do. I want to look at the parallel account. Uh, There is some additional information there that I think um, feeds into the context. Now, here's how the Bible is going to do this. The four gospel writers are like four eyewitnesses that saw a car wreck from four different angles. So sometimes the Holy Spirit enabled them to include or exclude information that was helpful for their purposes and how the Holy Spirit was using them. The addition or subtraction of certain information between the four gospel writers helps us fill in the picture of what God is up to. We should not see this, though, as some sort of contradiction. It's not like we have the Gospel of Matthew copied four times. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are four eyewitnesses that include and exclude information. An easy way for me to explain this is, my name is uh, Colby Corso, and I could introduce myself as Colby Corso, or I could say my name is Colby Joseph Corso. Both of those things are correct. One just has additional information, and then other has information, I wish you didn't know my middle name, right? And so I can include or exclude information based on what I want to communicate to you, and the Holy Spirit used the authors to do this. So let's look at some things that the Holy Spirit put inside of this. I'm going to read this whole passage, and then I'm going to bring up some slides and, and, and try to give you a little understanding of what's going on. Uh, chapter 16 of Matthew, starting verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, underline that if you will. He asked his disciples, who do people, not you first, he wants to know who do people say that the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do now you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ this is the word Christos. This is, Christ is not Jesus' last name, people. All right, It's a, a thing for the anointed. He's the Messiah. He is God with us. He's the Redeemer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let God's people say amen. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is the word that basically means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which is a parallel word or name for rock. And on this rock, there's something going on here in Greek that you can't really see. Peter's name is a masculine, Petros. He says on this Petra, so all my Roman Catholic friends that have joined us here, Peter's name is a masculine. On this rock is a feminine rock. Uh, on this rock, that is Peter's confession of who Jesus is, on this Petra, I will build my church. The church is not built on Peter. The church is built on Christ. All right? On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's important. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Similar to how he restricted them from spreading the gospel before he had done the gospel work of the cross and the resurrection. So for God, timing is incredibly important. Go back to the first part of this verse where he says he went to the district of Caesarea Philippi. Ty, if you got that. Caesarea Philippi. This was 25 miles north, as Ronnie said last week, of Galilee, where he had been doing predominantly his ministry in Israel. And it is just under Mount Hermon, which is a, it's hard for us to think of this because we often think of Israel as a desert. But Mount Hermon was a snow-capped mountain. You could ski there up in the north. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is the area of Dan, which was also the place that apostated and abandoned God first. In Israel, in the Old Testament, you kind of think about the south and Judah, the hillbillies, they held out the longest. Up in the north with all them Yankees, they went after adultery, idolatry real quick. So this is the territory of Dan. It's green. It's beautiful. Um, It was the center in the Old Testament of the worship of Baal. You had child sacrifice here. You had all kind of forms of different pagan practices. So here we see in the back, you see a little bit of snow-capped Mount Hermon. Uh, You can go to Nimrod's Fortress. I've actually been there before. If you ever do a tour of Israel, and I'd love to take our church there, um, you for sure are going to go here. I mean, it's green. It's beautiful. Um, and then below that is Caesarea Philippi. It was named after, as Ronnie taught us last week, uh, one of the descendants of King Herod, uh, Philip, the Tetrarch, and he dedicated it to Caesar. So to honor Caesar, he threw Caesar's name in front of his own, and thus you get uh, Caesarea Philippi. There was a cave at the bottom of this place in Caesarea Philippi. And that cave was to the worship of the god Pan. Um, Pan was worshipped right here. So Baal worship becomes worship of Pan, and eventually, like all good pagan practices, eventually they start worshiping Caesar there. And you know nobody ever worships the government today, but just bear with me. Um, and so they they went there. So go to the next one. Um, this had a, a a stream of water that flowed from Mount Hermon down in a natural wellspring. A lot of times when you think about the Bible, you don't think about this, right? You think about the desert in the south, but they they have this waterfall that's there. Go to the next one. So this is a little uh, recreation of what the town would have looked like in Caesarea Philippi in the first century A.D. The town had this grotto or worship thing on the cliff to the false god Pan. And the town was called Panias, or, you know, if you mess up the pronunciation, Banias, and so it became known that. Go to the next one. So if you move closer into that grotto, this would have been the temple that was erected there. And sacrifices would have been made here. Um, In order to worship the god Pan, they believed that this grotto or this cave that is there, if you'll go to the next one, um, was a portal between earth and hell or Hades or the abode of the gods. And they believed in the winter that their gods kind of wintered in the abode below Hades. Kind of like in Colorado, we lose all of our snowbirds. Am I right, Gates? Am I right? All right. And so this is, if you go there today, this is still there. Um, You can go and there's things that are uh, etched into the side of the mountain. Uh, Go to the next one. Now this, when they would come to worship the God Pan, this is why you're going to be asking me for children's church after this week. They would go there and, and Pan was known for fertility. He was half goat and half man. 
And so if you think of like Lord of the, or not Lord of the Rings, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. Tomness, he's like a fawn. He's, he's fawn-like in this structure. This is one that they actually, re, uh, a statue they recovered from this area. Most of that's been destroyed. And uh, go to the next one. I think it's a better representation of kind of what Pan would have looked like. And he was said to bless with fertility. And so people would go there and commit all kinds of detestable acts of adultery, fornication, sexual morality, and, uh, and even bestiality where people would go there and have sex with goats in the worship of Pan. All right? So there's a redneck ag joke here that I'm not telling. All right? But this is paganism previous to Christianity. And this is what happened at this area. So go to the next one. This is the cave, give you an idea of where they believed. They, this area right here was called the gates of hell. That's the gates of hell in a physical representation. Now, here's the thing. Here, what did Jesus just do? Jesus just took 12 conservative Jewish church boys, marched them 25 miles north to the red light district where some weird goat stuff happening, right? What is this, Amsterdam, Vegas? Did they go to Sedona to the vortex? Now, this is the church youth mission trip you ain't sending your kid on. He marches them to the gates of hell. The whole way through, you could be at one of the disciples saying, where are we going? We are getting further and further from Jerusalem. Jesus, where are you taking us? As they hit the strip with the hookers. Where are you taking us? As they roll into this, as they stand right here in front of the gates of hell, which in their minds would have been what? The sickest place on earth? That without Jesus taking them there, they would have hated it. They would have despised it. They would have avoided it. There is maybe not a place in the mind of his disciples that he could have taken them and not, that would have been more vile than this place. This place don't agree with their values. They don't believe the way that they believe. Their mamas wouldn't have wanted them there. Here's the point. This is exactly where Jesus wants them to confess who he is. This place. Jesus wants his disciples to confess him in bad places. Jesus wants his disciples to confess him in bad places. At workplaces that are bad, locker rooms, camp trips. Have you guys ever been to a deer camp? 
He wants his disciples to go right up to the gates of hell and in that place herald who he really is. Not in safe spaces where people only agree with you. You are called Christian to storm the gates of hell. Our calling is to be witnesses at the gates of hell. That is where we must answer the question to a watching world who Jesus is. Notice, at this place, he asked them first, who do people say that I am? Tell me all the wrong answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Give me all their wrong answers. Let's get that out of the way. He is preparing them for a world that is going to have the wrong answer about who he is. Pagans, listen, Muslims have an answer of what they say, who they say Jesus is. And it's dead wrong. It will not save you. Atheists, agnostics, college professors, your crazy uncle has an answer to who Jesus is. Come on now. He is preparing his disciples to herald his great name at the gates of hell. You have to be prepared for all the world's wrong answers about God and about Jesus. Because there will be hostility coming. And that's where I'm going. I want to end on on verse 34 of Mark 8. Because we're going to start looking at preparing our hearts for what happens when we get the answer about who Jesus is right. There's consequences for getting the question of who Jesus is right. So here's the thing. Uh, we're to go to the gates of hell and in the midst of a world full of wrong answers about Jesus, tell them exactly who he is. Now, it's interesting that gates are a defensive structure. They're not an offensive structure. Like you put gates around uh, for resistance. Um, You put gates around because you dig in. You're trying to protect something. Um, The picture here is that the church is meant to be offensive. We are here to take their land, to take their influence, to take their hold on culture. The church is never meant to be in retreat, hiding within the walls of a church. We are meant to be offensive in taking the gospel to the nations. They have gates playing defense trying to hold on to what Satan has dug in. We are to go there, to the most evil and corrupt places on earth, and leave no niche for evil and ungodly and wicked debased practices to be propagated. The call is clear, no hiding. We are, as a church, the squad that storms the gates of hell. 
and we preach Christ right there. Um, there's a ministry that I got connected to when I was in college, and they're still going on now. Um, it's called triplexchurch.com, xxxchurch.com. And it was a group of pastors from some conservative churches that realized, like in Vegas, they have these uh, uh, pornography conventions that happen in Vegas. And porn was just wrecking so many people in their community, and there was really nobody reaching out to the people that were producing por- pornographic films or the people that are in those things. So God put it on these people's, these pastors' hearts to go to the largest pornography convention that Vegas holds. And I imagine, it's pro- if you know what Comic-Con is, it's like that, but different costumes, all right? And so you can imagine telling your church, coming up being like, hey, so where are you going to be next weekend? Uh, yeah, about that. Um, and so these pastors went and set up a booth there. And they said, because who else is witnessing to these people? Who else is sharing the love of Christ with these people? And through their ministry for now over a decade, they have seen men and women saved out of that industry. They've seen people in churches liberated from the bondage of pornography because they weren't afraid to go to the gates of hell and tell people who Jesus was. This is the call of the church. Find your place at the gates of hell and right there witness for Christ, church. You hear me? Tell people who He is, even amidst all the wrong answers that others might offer. Now here's the thing. As we do that, there are consequences that come. I want to look at chap, uh, Mark eight thirty four. This is where I want to get, and then I want to just let it breathe, and then I'm going to come back to it next week and, and finish out the consequences of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and answering the question correctly about who He is. This is where I want to get. And calling the crowd to Him and to the disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross... And follow me. Previous to this, Jesus, in verse 31 says, and he began to teach them. And we're going to revisit this uh, in probably a month or so. But he began to teach. He began 831, 931, 1032. This is going to be a, a repetition for Jesus about his intentionality of going to the cross. That the Son of Man must, underline that, must suffer. There is no other way besides the cross. There's no plan B. There's no two paths. Must suffer. Things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. You know how he, you know he said it plainly? Stinking Peter got it. All right. So Peter's getting it. It's got to be plain. And he took Peter aside and began, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You got to love our boy Peter, right? Jesus, I know you authored the whole Old Testament, but let me tell you how it really goes. I know you created the stars, but let me tell you my plans I have for you. You know, we laugh about Peter at this thing, but how many times has God been doing something in your life and you ain't having it? 
And in that moment, are you the master or is he the master? Is he the king or are you the king? Who's on the throne here? Who's calling the shots? Who gets the last word? You or God? Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, which is interesting because likely Peter is just the spokesman for the rest of the disciples who are too big a cowards. Peter just the idiot that's loud enough to say what they're all thinking. Seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And I love uh, what we talked about last week about just putting Peter in his place. This word for rebuke is the exact same Greek word in chapter 1 and chapter 3 that Jesus had to use for the demons. The same temptation that Peter is offering is the same temptation that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness. Worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. No cross. Here's what Satan's offering, and here's what Peter's proposing. Jesus, there's a way to get the crown without the cross. To get the throne without the thorns. And Jesus, in love with the glory of God, and in love with saving sinners like you, would not skip the cross because he would have you. He rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan or adversary, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here is a reality that we have to grapple with is that this is a warning to us that we can be disciples of Jesus and yet be so filled with worldliness and the ways of man that Jesus deems it necessary to rebuke us into silence. Jesus has to sometimes shut his own disciples' big, stupid mouths. Because a heart full of love for the world is causing us to say things that are against the kingdom of God. Here is a, here's a lesson for those that are mature in Christ and that have ears to hear. I want you to soak this up and maybe write this down and I want you to think on it and meditate on it. Let no self-serving roadblock or sinful stumbling block keep you from going to the cross and the chopping block with Jesus. Because he who saves his life is going to lose it. Get people who would keep you from your cross out of your way. Rebuke anyone who stands in the way of the cross that Jesus has called you to take. And by the way, your cross to bear is not minor inconveniences, Americans. It is, it is a Jesus cross-reflecting parallel. And anybody that would keep you from taking the cross that Jesus said is necessary to follow him, rebuke them out of your way. They may flatter you and offer you all the prosperity and comfort in the world. 
but they are not offering you the path to life. Because Christ said the only way to the path of life is that you deny yourself, that you lose your life, that you take a cross, and that you follow Him. And so the more they pump you up and they stuff you full of pride and they flatter you and they offer you trinkets and wealth and comfort and all of the world, they are asking you to forfeit your soul. Be careful. Get them out of your way. You've got to be real with people. There is nothing that will keep me from the cross that Jesus has called me to take. It is the purpose of my life. So whether it's a roadblock or a stumbling block, get your stiff arm out and get that junk out of the way. Not everybody can hear that because they, they want a version of Christianity that does not cost them their lives. There is no Christianity like that. There's just cross-bearing Dying to self and eternal glory and life in Him. That's it. There is no two ways. Must suffer. There's a necessary path of the cross. Jesus is going to take on behalf of sinners for their sins that they might be reconciled to God. Then He's going to invite them to take a cross in reflection of that gospel cross as their life's calling as disciples to come know Him and follow Him, reflect Him and glorify Him. You ain't skipping the cross, church. My fear as a pastor in this place, with the comforts we have, the technology we have, the wealth that we have, is that we've become addicted to our softness. We're too soft to follow Jesus with splintery things like crosses. We're worried about losing jobs or reputation or more and more wealth while our brothers and sisters around the world that are hearing this same passage live every day worried they might lose their lives. And we're over here playing church Um, I, I, I love, uh, there's a pastor from Scotland named Alistair Begg. Some of you guys may know him. I love the way that he explained this. Um, he, he said the, the threefold, when Jesus says to come after me, if you want to know God and you want eternal life, you want to come after me, threefold, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That threefold invitation is what Jesus is offering as the terms and conditions of your service. Like, it's the terms and conditions by which you serve Him as a disciple. There's no other way to progress as a disciple into maturity without self-denial, cross-taking, and the following and imitation of Jesus. It's the terms and conditions. So like, for instance, when you have an application on your phone and you download it to your phone, um, there's terms and conditions that none of you liars read, all right? And you've got to click, 
Okay, older saints, applications are these things on your phone that do things, all right? And so you, you have your grandkids, put them on there, and then they... Young saints, terms and conditions are the consequences your parents will have to deal with if you misuse the application that they paid for, right? So you put the application on there, and it makes you read this thing, and it's, it's legalese, right? Like, you, nobody trying to read that junk. And so you skip through, and now they're not even saying, have you read it? It's just, do you agree with it? I agree with things that I don't even understand. That's right. Like, get in there, and then you get, come to find out China owns the application, and they just stole all your photos of cats. All right? And so that's in the terms and conditions. And so inside those terms, they kind of say, we created the app for this, this purpose. If you want to use it, we're going to get these benefits from it, or you can't use it in this way. You have to use it in that way. It's the criteria by which you experience the benefits of the application. Now, here's the thing. There's no negotiation on there, is there? You don't come to the terms and conditions and start to say, well, I want this term and this condition, but I don't want that one. I want this. You can't email the creator, Mark Zuckerberg, hey, I want this, but not that. You can't do that. The creator gets to set the criteria for it. And are we ever experiencing the negative consequences of that little setup? You can't go in and negotiate it. If you want the benefits of what comes with the application, you have to agree to the terms and the conditions. And those conditions are set by a creator and are beyond negotiation. Church, this is exactly the way Christianity is. This is exactly the way Christianity is. There is no crown. There is no glory without a cross. There is no crown without a cross. To deny self, to take up the cross, and to follow even to the gates of hell, even in unsafe places where people do not agree with you about Jesus, is the terms and conditions. Now here's the consequence and here where I want to end. I heard this at the men's thing or a version of it and I thought it was applicable for where we're at today. If you get who Jesus is wrong, You can never get right who you are. If you don't know who your creator is and you don't know who Jesus is, you have no hope of getting right the question of who am I really and what is my purpose in life. One, in order to answer that question correctly, must die to self to discover eternal life in Jesus. You've got to throw away all that you think you know And let him who created you reveal himself to you in Christ. Can you identify who Jesus is? And can you identify him at the gates of hell? I'm going to pray for you and then I want to talk about the gospel and we're going to take communion. Would you bow here maybe just for a moment? This may not be the gates of hell, but I want to ask you the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? to your family, to your friends, to your co-workers. 
to those people that disagree with you politically on social media? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he your Christ? The one who is sent to save you from your sins? Or is he something else? Today, if you've not confessed him as your Lord and Savior and trusted his death on the cross for your sins, I just invite you spiritually to surrender your life to God and see that he'll give you new life in Christ. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion. Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, your name is hallowed and glorious and good because you sent Jesus to die for our sins. You sent him to the cross to be tortured, beaten, and crucified that our sin might be punished there. So now, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who have been transformed by the gospel that they would have the boldness today to preach the gospel in taking communion. God, would you put your hand upon this time together and be with us in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. If uh, somebody's going to come, we're going to open this up. We come now to our part of the service. Um, I want to be upfront with you. Every Sunday we take communion. This is my agenda for you. My agenda as uh, your preacher is to preach against your sin and my sin in such a way that you understand you're a sinner. We're an old school church kind of like that. All right. And I preach against your sin so that you might be honest about the condition of your own heart. I also try to preach in such a way that the gospel and grace, God's love and unmerited favor in Jesus is also explicitly clear. So on one hand, I want to tell you ultimately from each passage what the bad news is so I can tell you about the good news. My hope is that you there who have believed the gospel, would then stand up in front of all of us, come forward, and take these elements that represent the body and blood of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel that you've believed in your heart outwardly. Do you get it? These two elements are ancient and historic for the church worldwide. Brothers and sisters all over the world are taking communion with us today. They're all standing up and saying at whatever corner of the gates of hell that they're at that they believe in the Jesus whose blood was shed for us. Uh, wine in the church, or grape juice if you're Baptist, um, is created from grapes. And in order to get wine, what you have to do is you've got to pulverize the grapes. You've got to beat them until they bleed the juice. And that juice runs into a container and then they seal it up and they hide it, sort of like, I don't know, like a tomb. And then after a period of time, it begins to rise and to ferment. And wine is the drink not of the poor, in case you've been to Durango at the liquor store and you know how much expensive, I know you're real Baptist, you know how expensive it is. Wine is the drink of the rich. It is a celebratory drink. It's a drink that you, you have when you have good friends and something to to party about. But in order to get it, you gotta, you got to beat the grapes until they bleed. The bread, or 
for us crackers. In order to get that, you take the grain and you've got to beat it into dust. You pound it. You destroy it. Right? Then you, and you put it into the fire. As you know, like maybe Christ took hell for us. In the given time, it comes out and it's this thing that is substance for us. Do you, know, you know who eats bread? Poor people. While wine is the drink of the rich, bread is the staple of the poor. If you've ever been poor enough to have a ketchup sandwich, you know what I'm talking about. And so in these two things, we see our poverty in Christ sustained and we anticipate the celebration and the party one day in heaven. All of that is through one man, Jesus Christ, who was beaten for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserve was laid upon him and in the chastisement of Christ, we were given the peace of God. As you stand up, if you have believed the gospel, we say this is reserved only for Christians who will believe the gospel. As you come forward, there's a couple things that I would say are requirements for you to come take communion today. One, you've got to be a sinner. If you don't know where you need Christ, if you, if you are a hypothetical sinner, if you're a perfect person in here, this is not for you. This is only for us who can admit that we're broken people, sinful people who need the gospel. The second is, this is only for people that have trusted Christ in their hearts and been born again. And that find in him, as they've lost their life, he has become eternal life to them. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then if God has compelled your heart, would you come and preach the gospel to the rest of us by taking this communion? Um, I'm going to invite you to come and take the elements, take them to your seat, and then we'll take them together. Okay? Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave three days later who made us rich in heaven and sustains us in the poverty of our soul and is the bread of life. God, I pray um, for people here to deny themselves and to take up the cross and to follow Jesus. I pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. If the Lord leads you, would you please come take the elements?